Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Hi, welcome to Special Education Advocacy with Ashley Barlow. I'm so happy you joined me. In today's episode, we're going to talk about evaluations. I'm just gonna give you basic information about evaluations. I promise to circle back and to talk more specifically about different kinds of evaluations, how we use evaluations, lots more about evaluations to come, but evaluations leave people incredibly intimidated. And so I wanna dive a little bit deeper into evaluations later. For right now, I just wanna talk about what they are, what they're used for, and for heaven's sakes, what to do with them, how to read them, because they're intimidating. Before we do that though, I want to invite you to a really special event. Tomorrow night, Wednesday, September 23rd, 2020, I'm hosting a webinar. The topic of the webinar is clearing the confusion at the IEP table. Now, if there is one tip I could give you on clearing the confusion at the IEP table, it lies in communication. So in this webinar, I'm gonna give you 10 really good strategies for communication that you can take to the IEP table and you can take to your day-to-day -day advocacy. Now, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say, I don't wanna be an advocate. Well, here's the thing is we're all advocates. We don't all work as advocates, we don't all get paid as advocates, but we all advocate. And we're even teaching children to be self-advocates, to speak for themselves, to talk about what it is that they need in order to succeed at school. So if you're a parent, this webinar will help you so much as an IEP team member. If you're a teacher, you're an advocate. You have an obligation to speak for that child, to speak for all of your students. And so this communication strategy skills building um, session is going to help you immensely. And if you're anybody else on that IEP team, you're a related service professional, you're somebody who parents invite from time to time, these communication strategies will either help you communicate or they will help you help the people that communicate. Whether you're a support team person or you're actually participating in the meeting, this will help you to help the entire team help the child. So I hope you'll join me tomorrow night for the webinar. Invite your friends, it's gonna be great. I have a couple of giveaways. Um, and at the end of the webinar, I'm going to announce something super exciting. I'm gonna give you a little hint. It is a online training course in special education advocacy. So I really hope that you show up tomorrow night for the webinar to learn more about communication strategies and to hear this super exciting news about this online training course that I've been working day and night on. So come along, it's gonna be great. Now, let's get into evaluations. As I said, we're just gonna cover the basics of evaluations because they're so intimidating. I don't want to um, drive you bonkers with a bunch of information. So we're gonna chip away at evaluations very um, slowly. 
I know that when parents get that big comprehensive evaluation packet from a school, it is intimidating as all get out. You get that big packet and you feel overwhelmed. Frankly, you feel sad. And I know why you feel sad. I understand it. We spend so much time talking about what our kids can do. You know, there are so many campaigns out there on social media and elsewhere that talk about more alike than different and yes, I can and all these great empowering things. And then we get this really dry, long statistical packet that talks about what our children can't do. And yeah, it might mention some of their strengths, but the strengths might come across as almost gratuitous. And so they do make us sad and it's okay to feel sad when we get them. But we also feel sad because they almost make us shut down because they're so big and they're so intimidating and they're full of like paragraphs of explanation and then these little numbers that we make nothing of. And so it overwhelms us and then we kind of stay stuck in that sad. And I can't tell you how many of my clients come to me and they have no idea what that evaluation report says. So my goal today is to get you that information. Parents also feel misunderstood because oftentimes districts will send in an evaluation report and parents will say, this is not what I told them. You know, yeah, I circled a couple numbers on a profile or a questionnaire, but this is not what I told them. And so we can also talk about when we answer those questionnaires and profiles and when we plan for the evaluation, we can talk about having a stake even in that part of the planning process. Then if you are a person that helps a child that is on an IEP, maybe you're a tutor at a tutoring center, maybe you're a coach, a, a Cub Scout leader, someone like that. Maybe you're a, a person that coaches parents and really helps to empower parents. They bring you this evaluation packet and say, look, look what I got from the school, what do I do next? Well, my goodness, you're just a Cub Scout leader and you're happy to help the child, but you get this really big, long, intimidating packet and you, quite frankly, have no place to start. You have no idea where to start. Everything's kind of taken out of context. It doesn't really describe the kid that you know, the kid that shows up for Cub Scouts, the kid that's the star on the basketball court. It doesn't describe that person. It's just a bunch of numbers and paragraphs that explain tests. And it's really hard to kind of put that into context. I always tell people they feel like a foreign language. And guess what? I was a German education major, so I speak foreign languages and I also speak IEP. So I'm here to help. I know how you feel and I really wanna help. So why do we need evaluations? There is a concept in the federal law that is called child find. And that literally means that school districts have to go out and find kids. They have to find children that are suspected of having a disability. Now, sometimes people say, well, my kid doesn't have a disability. My kid's just, dys just dyslexic. Or my kid doesn't have a disability. My child just has some emotional or behavioral disorders. Well, in IDEA, in the federal law, they define disability very broadly to include specific learning disabilities like dyslexia and dysgraphia, emotional and behavioral disorders like ADD, ODD, ADHD, those sorts of things. And so by way of um, federal definition in the IDEA, the federal law that supports special education, um, those sorts of diagnoses qualify as disabilities. 
So what the federal law says is that school districts must identify, locate, and evaluate children that are suspected of having a disability. There's kind of a, a, a flip side of that, and there are parents of children that got diagnoses when their children were in utero. They knew in utero that their child had Down syndrome. They knew in utero that their child had a heart defect that would almost definitely cause developmental delay. And so those parents think, well, why do we have to do another evaluation? We're coming out of early intervention and we have it. Well, there are laws that also mandate when evaluations are done. And so if a child is evaluated coming into early intervention, then we have to reevaluate every three years. And it's probably a good idea to reevaluate entering kindergarten. And there are obviously reasons to not reevaluate within that two year window and to wait, pardon me, the three year window and to maybe wait the entire three years. So we really have to look at initial evaluations and then those follow-up evaluations separately. So let's stick today on just the initial evaluation. We know that this child find law says that districts have to identify and locate and then evaluate children that are suspected of having a disability. Now, the um, the schools can find that out by working with the children. They do assessment profiles that some children might be an RTI, which we can talk about later when we talk about specific learning disabilities in a different podcast, I promise. Um, but there are ways that um, school districts might say, you know, I suspect that this child has a specific learning disability, or I suspect that this child might qualify for an IEP um, for being a child that has ADHD, that sort of thing. In that case, a district is tasked with the role, with the job of evaluating the child. A parent can also go to the school district and say, I would like to have my child evaluated to begin special education services. And then that triggers the need to evaluate under that child find law. So disability is defined by the law. We know that there are 13 categories of disability in the federal law and that each one of them has a set of criteria that you have to follow in order to qualify. At the end of this podcast, we're going to go through a, a hypothetical and I've just pulled up Kentucky's disability form for a mild mental disability which is a disability that Kentucky law has codified into the Kentucky regulations. And we'll go through that as a, as a checklist so I can give that to you as an example. But there are all the different disability categories and then states have um, taken the federal law and have spelled them out and made eligibility forms. And so then we have to run the evaluation. What we do first is we plan the evaluation. So the entire team, the IEP team, sits down and talks about what tests we're going to run. Now there are lots and lots and lots of tests that districts can run to evaluate a child to see if the child qualifies for special education services. The tests kind of on whole will test the child's aptitude, the child's skill level, the child's ability. So we test aptitude and then we also test levels of performance. Like where are we in math right now? Are we on basic addition or are we in algebra? Where are we on 
social skills. So we'll look at both aptitude and then actual level of performance. And then depending on what the, dis the suspected disability is, then we'll run additional tests. So the school system might run a cognitive test. Oftentimes we call that an IQ test, which is a test that will determine, that is supposed to determine the child's cognitive aptitude or the child's um, capability intellectually. Then, then uh, there are academic tests which will test the child's abilities to perform academically, just on math, social studies, reading, writing, those kinds of things. There are tests that test adaptive behavior. Oftentimes those are kind of profiles where you um, will be interviewed. You know, can your child um, dress and undress, toilet independently, brush his or her teeth and do other um, daily hygiene skills, things like that. Of course, there are lots of tests for motor skills. You know, we test fine motor and gross motor and um, lots of different motor skills. Similarly, there are lots of tests that a speech pathologist might run. So we can talk about expressive and receptive speech. Expressive is spoken. Receptive is what we, heard, what we hear and what we can take in. We might test a child's articulation, which is their, um, their speech pattern. You know, do we have a, an R that we can't say very well or an SH that we can't say very well? And what are those patterns? So lots of different tests within um, the kind of speech umbrella. We could test whether or not a child needs assistive technology, like um, maybe a talker or, um, you know, we call that a, a, a talker is kind of like a, a colloquial or an informal um, thing for a voice output system, something that could speak for the child that might have an expressive language just delay. Um, there are also skills inventories that we can just check. You know, I always oftentimes describe this to um, parents like that insert that comes in a lot of kindergarten report cards. And the insert will just say, you know, we know 24 out of 26 letters and there will be a check next to each of them. Well, there are inventory checklists for lots of different skills. And so sometimes school districts will want to run those. There are tests that test vocational aptitude if we're getting close to um, transition to adulthood. So what skills do we have or what's our aptitude for vocation, for job training, for post-secondary um, schooling? What's that look like? There's social profiles, lots and lots and lots of different tests that can run. And so first the IEP team sits down and says, okay, what tests do we need to run? Now those are all framed in the framework of the suspected disability. So if we suspect that a child has ADHD and would qualify as a student with some other health impairment, because that's the disability category, then we might not want to run a speech test because the speech test might not tell us anything about whether or not the child qualifies as having a, a, um, an other health impairment like attention deficit disorder. However, if we suspect that a child has ADHD and maybe that it is related to a speech delay, then we might test both. And so it has to be unique to the child and unique to the suspected disability. Okay, so the tests are run and the way that that happens is various professionals from the school system and sometimes they hire other people from outside 
will test the child. Um, when you're planning the evaluations, you might want to talk about how the child will perform. For example, times of day that are good, days of the week that are good, the child's schedule, the child's endurance. How long can the child um, withstand a test environment? You know, a lot of kids don't do well in a four-hour testing session. And so, you know, it, and if a four-hour testing session is planned and the child might do well, then what do we need to do to ensure that the child's still doing well in hour four? So do we need breaks? Do we need snacks? Do we need... Um, you know, walks? Do we need access to a person or some kind of manipulative? What do we need in order to ensure that the child does well? So once the child's evaluated by all of those professionals, they will then submit their reports. A lot of school districts take all of the reports and they put them into something that they call a comprehensive evaluation report or something like that. So sometimes you'll get one big report from school systems, and sometimes you'll get several. So you might get one from the school psychologist that does the academic and the cognitive testing and some behavioral profiles, probably some observations. And then you might get one from the physical therapist and from the occupational therapist and from the vision specialist, and you might get several like that. You also could get one big one. It varies district to district, state to state as to how they come in. Now, you get those things and this is where the confusion happens. If you weren't confused planning it, you get that packet. And whether it's one or it's six reports, it's all together long. I've seen them be 40 pages plus. And so even if it's eight pages, it's still intimidating. One thing that I'm gonna tell you is, the reports almost always have paragraphs that just describe the test scores. They describe the different sections, the different subtests, that sort of thing. And oftentimes that paragraph that describes something is not super helpful. And so don't spend a whole lot of time focusing on that if it confuses you. If it does confuse you though, here's a communication tip. Ask questions. Call the person that wrote that, that part of the report and say, you know, I got your report and I appreciate that, that you sent it to me. I'm having a hard time understanding the second paragraph on, on page eight. Could you explain that to me so that you understand it? You can't participate in the IEP meeting unless you really understand what's going on. So please feel empowered to ask questions. So one thing I want for you to understand about evaluation reports is how reports, pardon me, is how evaluations are scored. Evaluations are scored on a bell curve. Now, what a bell curve is, is it's a wave. And I love waves because I like to surf and because I love water and I love the beach. I like chlorine better actually, but I like the beach. So the bell curve kind of speaks to me because it's a wave. It doesn't speak to me because it's hard to understand. And so once I understood it, I came to love it. And I'm gonna explain it for you so that you can um, really get it. Now, here's what a bell curve um, looks like. It starts, it's, we're going to follow a horizontal line. And on the very far left, we're going to be 
far down by the bottom of the page, by the horizontal line. And then as we go towards the right, our curve is gonna go up, 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 and it's gonna go up to, in the middle of the page, it's gonna be as high as the page. And then it's gonna start coming back down. So then we're gonna wave right back down, like a big rolling wave. That's what the bell curve looks like. Now, what's the bell curve tell us? Well, in the very center of that wave, we are at dead average. Tests, most tests, everything's different, but let's say that most tests are scored on an average of 100, a standard deviation of 100. This is statistics. So in the dead center of that bell curve, we're gonna put 100. And if you score average on a standardized test, your score is 100 if it's normed on 100. And right now we're acting like it's normed on 100. So if you're in the center of that paper, at the top of the bell curve, you are 100 and you have scored dead average. Then you've heard about standard deviations. All the standard deviations tell us is how far off of the average you are. Now, standard deviations on tests that are normed on 100 go out by 15. So from 100, we add or subtract 15. 100 minus 15 is 85. 100 plus 15 is 115. So if you score between 85 and 100, you are in the average range. Similarly, if you score between 100 and 115, you are average. So the average range on that bell curve is the center, the highest point of that wave, and it goes from 85 to 115. Any test score between 85 and 115 is average. Then we're gonna go out another 15 points on either end. So we go 70 and 130. Between 70 and 84 is one standard deviation below the average. If your test scores fall within one standard deviation below the average, then you have a test score that is below average. That's what we call below average. Let's stay on that side of the bell curve. We'll take another 15 off and we're gonna go to 55 or below, pardon me, 55 to 70, because we've taken 70 and we've subtracted another 15. Now we've gone from 100 to 85 to 70 to 55. Well, if you're between 70 and 84, you are one standard deviation off the mean. If you are between 55 and 69, you are two standard deviations below the mean. That means statistically that there is a significant variation from the mean, significantly below average. So two standard deviations below the mean or the average is a significant variation from the average. One is simply below average. And then take it to the other end, between 115 and 130, or 116 and 130 technically, is one standard deviation above the average. We just call that above average. And then once you're past 130, then we say you are significantly above average. You're performing particularly well on that part of the test. So what I encourage people to do, what do we do with this? That's the question, that's a lot, right? What do we do with this? 
I encourage people every single time you get a bell curve, every time you get a report, I like to take a blank piece of paper and across the bottom, I write those numbers, 55, 70, 85, 100, 115, 130, 145. And then I draw my bell curve to match it. And then I put those test scores on my bell curve. I write a little dot and I say, listening comprehension here. Write a little dot and say, oral expression here. And I look to see where those scores land on the bell curve. That tells me where we do well and where we're not doing well. And that is particularly important for me to understand the profile of the child. In addition to that, I can go back and I can match scores if a child's been evaluated before to the prior scores to see if things have improved or gotten worse or if they've stayed the same. And that's important to evaluating the test scores because ultimately a test is just a test. And so we have to look at them. We can't look at them in a vacuum of information. We have to look at them as a whole picture with the child at the center of it. We can't just look at these numbers. So I look at those things and I think, okay, where is the child and where are we on each individual test um, score and each individual subtests? Now, from that information, we can look at statistics and we can find out percentile ranks. So what I'm gonna tell you is anything between 70 and 130 is going to constitute 98, 95% of the entire test range. So if you are below 70, you're in the bottom set two percentile. And similarly, if you're above 130, you're in the top 2% on that particular test. Anything else, you can look at the standard score and it will tell you what percentile that particular score is in. And sometimes that can be helpful. Sometimes that makes more sense to a parent that's looking at something. We also sometimes get grade level equivalent. So we can look at that and say, okay, we're performing one or two grade levels above where we actually are, or one or two grade levels below where we actually are. And then we can look at that and say, okay, well then what does that information tell us? So the big reason that we need to know this information is because we plug it into a value, into, pardon me, into eligibility forms. And what the eligibility forms are, is they are these forms that tell us what we have to meet in order to qualify as a student with a disability that we have identified as the suspected disability. So we look at those eligibility forms and we can literally check through them and say, okay, are, does the IQ fall two standard deviations or more below the mean? Well, if that's the, if that's the requirement, then we're gonna look for an IQ that is below 70. And if th that's the case, then we can check yes. If we can't check yes, then we have to check no, and then the, the eligibility form in most states will send us in some other direction. So basically, it's like a big matching game. We have to match the evaluation results with that eligibility form to see if the child qualifies as being a child with a disability according to that state's regulations. So they all make sense if you look at them in terms of the eligibility. 
I've got the example of the Kentucky eligibility form for a mild mental disability. And so I'm gonna take you through, it's only four steps, it's not very long, and I'm gonna take you through it so that we can use this as an example. So there are four questions in number one. The first question is, is the cognitive functioning at least two standard, devia two standard deviations, but not more than three standard deviations below the mean? Well, then we're looking at a, an IQ that is between 55 and 69. So if we can say yes to that, then we can check yes. And there's just simply a yes and a no check mark that we can put in a different box. 1B says, is adaptive behavior at least two standard deviations below the mean? So then we would look at the adaptive behavior score from a test that tests adaptive behavior and we would see if it is at least two standard deviations below the mean. So is the adaptive behavior score below 70? Then we would look to see 1C. Is there a severe deficit in overall ac academic performance, including acquisition, retention, and application of knowledge? So what we would do is we would look at the academic skills. And this actually does not require us to look at the academic scores, interestingly. But we can look at academics and see if there is a severe deficit in academics. Of course, if an academic test has been run, then we can look at those scores to see if there are academic deficits. If so, we can check yes. And then finally, 1D, manifestation is typically during the developmental period. So then we look at the child's age and we talk about what the developmental period is. And Kentucky does have a lot of specific information that tells us what the definition of the developmental period is. So we check yes or no. Then we move on to number two. Evaluation information confirms that there is an adverse effect on educational performance. We've talked about that in podcasts in the, in the past. Any deficit in order to qualify for an IEP must adversely affect the educational performance. It is possible to have a deficit that does not affect your ability to access your education and doesn't affect your educational performance. And if that's the case, then it will not mandate that the district provide IEP services. So we would have to check yes on this paper in order for the child to qualify um, for as being a child with a mild mental disability in the state of Kentucky. The number three is that the evaluation information confirms that the reason for the deficit is not a lack of instruction in reading and math. Of course, because we wouldn't want to qualify children for IEP services if the problem was just that they had poor instruction. Then we need to beef up the instruction. And finally, it also is not a result of limited English proficiency. Similarly, if we have a child that can't access their, their education because they can't understand the language in which their education is provided, then they need language services. They don't need IEP services. So if we can check all of those things and we can look through this and use the test scores to get eligibility, if we could check yes, then we can say this child qualifies as a child with an MMD in the state of Kentucky, and then we could go to writing the IEP for the child. 
So that is why it's important to muddle through all of those test scores and to really understand the bell curve. I'm gonna put a bell curve up on my website for you, www.ashleybarlowco.com, so that you can access that while you're listening to this podcast. If you can't find it on my website, you can simply Google bell curve special education. You'll find one that helps you with special education. And I hope it really helps you to get that evaluation report and to feel empowered to actually do something with it.